everybody. It's episode eight of the Win at Work podcast, the podcast that gives you the tools to build a wildly successful career, the podcast that will help you go from hired to high potential. This is Kiana Williams. I'm the author of Win at Work, a career roadmap for building a wildly successful career available online at Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com. And I'm your host. The Win at Work podcast is produced every week for your education and enjoyment. So come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud, and be sure to connect with us on Instagram and Facebook. You can find us there at When at Work. Now, let's get into the show. So this week, we're talking about what it means to be in charge, to be the top dog, the big cheese, the CEO. Being in the role of CEO can be terrific. You're it. You've got your Brooks Brothers suit, corner office with the imposing mahogany desk and the killer view from your window. You've gained the power to put your brilliant idea into practice. You're synonymous with the company for your customers, your employees, and your stakeholders. Your family is proud of you. You feel like the sky's the limit. But being the CEO isn't always glamorous, especially when you just happen to be one of the few African-American men leading a successful organization. Today, we're talking with Robert Bo Chilton, CEO of Impact Community Action Agency, and Matari and Mo Wright, CEO of Rayma Consulting. Bo subscribes to the guiding principle of, to those whom much is given, much is required. His passion for empowering people and building a sense of community is reflected in his work as CEO of Impact Community Action. Bo has been at the helm of the organization for 10 years. Originally from Springfield, Bo graduated from Wright State University, where he earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in English and a Master of Education degree in secondary teaching. He also earned a second master's degree in higher education from The Ohio State University. Mo Wright is the president and CEO of Rama Consulting, a Columbus-based training and consulting firm specializing in stakeholder and community, organizational and employee engagement. Mo started the company almost 15 years ago. He is rated as a master trainer and has extensive experience in assessment, needs identification, strategic communications, and executive group facilitation. He is highly sought after for his experience in instructional design and delivery, team building, and group dynamics. Mo earned a BA in political science from Winston-Salem State University and holds master's degrees from The Ohio State University in public administration and workforce development. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Absolutely. So I have been so excited for this conversation all week. I can't even tell you how excited I've been. And I want to get right into it. So, of course, neither of you just lucked upon a CEO gig. I talk to people all the time who aspire to be where both of you are. So tell us a little bit about your path to CEO. Bo, let's start with you. Alrighty. Uh, well, as you mentioned uh, from my bio, uh, my background really is in education, and um, I still consider myself an educator in a classroom without walls. Uh, but that path really, uh, what, what set me on the path that I'm on now is when I had the opportunity to serve as a legislative analyst to uh, now Senator Charlita Tavares, at that time city council member, uh, having worked at the city, I really got a feel for how the city operates, who are the real movers and shakers, you know, who's make, making the decisions. 
and how what levers they're pulling. And the other thing that I had the opportunity to do was to get out into the community. Charlita said, you know, I have a scheduler. Wherever I can't be, I need you to be. Mm-hmm. And I remember a brother commenting. Uh, he was like, boy, you sure got that thing down. I was like, what you talking about? He's like, you come just a little late and you leave a little early. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's because I'm always running from meeting to meeting to meeting. But out in the community, that's where I really got to know a lot of people. And I think develop a reputation for getting things done. Uh, and so when uh, I had the opportunity to go and be the first director of African American Male Initiative at the Columbus Urban League, um, I remember when that legislation came through and I was thinking, man, which sucker is going to go out here and try and solve the issues of African American males for $150,000 <laughs> with a budget? And I was like, and lo and behold, that sucker ended up being me. Um, and it's funny because I resisted that initially. Uh, I said, nah, that's not what I want to do. That's a lot of instability unknowns Um, but I end up going to church one Sunday and I had one of those experiences where it seems like the pastor is preaching directly Mm -hmm. to me Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think he was talking about Gideon and how he was selected to lead this battle and he said you know I'm not prepared Um, you know why am I selected and you know and I had uh, people telling me they said well Bo you know you've taught middle school you've taught high school you've worked at the university level We know that, uh, according to Malcolm, education is the passport to our future. You've had experiences working with African-Americans and African-American males in particular at every level in helping them succeed. Why not you? Uh, So uh, after some prayer, I decided to take that position. And uh, that really set me up to then come here. Uh, I came to an organization that had uh, had, uh, basically declared bankruptcy. Uh, and then was reconstituted. There was a lot of distrust with the staff in the community, um, and they needed someone that they felt was trustworthy, transparent, and could reestablish the organization in the community. Uh, and I was given the opportunity to come here. Uh, there was a lot of questions around, you know, whether or not I had the experience. In fact, the article that the dispatch ran was rookie tapped to lead agency. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> so I had the opportunity to come to uh, Impact Community Action. Uh, I remember the dispatch article uh, talking about rookie tapped to lead the agency, uh, which I thought was kind of funny. But I decided, well, if I'm going to be the rookie, I'm going to be the rookie of the year. <laughs> uh, there you go. And it was interesting because... Um, When I was selected, I I pretty much assumed that it was a courtesy interview. uh, And I later found out from the board chair that it was. Uh, They had a pool of candidates. They had run two pools. They still didn't quite find a candidate, a consensus candidate. Uh, And there were a number of um, community leaders who called for them to open it up for a third uh, wave. And uh, the board chair, uh, Kevin Walker, at that time uh, said, no way. Uh, so they asked, well, can we give you three names of people to consider? And, you know, if, if you don't like any of those three and you select someone, we'll, we'll respect that. And he said, OK. So he gave the courtesy interview. Uh, I came in and I, um, I co-opted a lot of language that uh, then Senator Obama was using <laughs> um, because I knew the question around experience was going to be one that I had to speak to. And uh, what I told them was... Uh, you know, much like uh, Senator Obama, who says that 
when he was questioned about his experience, he said, well, if you look at Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney, they have all the military experience in the world and look what kind of mess they got us into. He said, at the end of the day, what the people really want is someone who has good judgment, someone who's gonna be transparent and communicate, and someone who's gonna provide aspirational leadership about where we can go and what we can be. Uh, and he said, and that's what I bring. And so I was using a lot of that same language. Yeah. And uh, they said, man, you spoke with such passion and conviction. We knew we had the right guy. Wow. So that's wow. how I ended up here. Wow, that's awesome. So, Mo, obviously your path is a little different, right? Um, because you're actually leading your own firm. But tell our listeners a little bit about kind of the journey to get there. You know, I, I often kind of reflect on how it is I got to this place. And I, I, I would take us back to uh, Raphael Fike High School okay. in Wilson, North Carolina. Uh, I got really engaged. Uh, so my mother passed away when I was in eighth grade. And so um, up until that point, I was, you know, trying to be an athlete, playing football. Uh, but when that happened, it was kind of this, um, this moment in life where you figure out, all right, this is probably not the path that's going to be my career. So let's figure out what else is out there. And so in high school, I got really involved with an organization called uh, Future Business Leaders of America. Now, at the time, it was just a student organization, uh, which I found myself getting really, really engaged with. I was a um, state reporter at one point. I had other positions in the, in the local chapter. Um, but what it got me exposed to was leadership and how do uh, students and others really develop their leadership. Um, it got me very comfortable in this idea of training others and developing others. And so... Uh, it, I think about that now, and it's like that was probably the spark that really led to entrepreneurship being a pathway for me. But but I wasn't on that path yet. I mean, so I go to college um, again, very active, uh, and so my, I think my the thing throughout a lot of the, the paths I've taken in life have been: you see an opportunity to provide leadership, you see what the consequences of not having good leadership are, and therefore you act. And so you know, being really engaged in student government on, on, on Winston-Salem State University, my alma mater, undergrad, um, you know, serving as student government president there and, and honing those skills, being a member of my fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha, uh, being chapter president there, kind of shaped those skills that it said, you've got to be somebody willing to step up and lead, to be willing to make a tough decision at the same time, uh, you can do the things that you like to do. And so you fast forward, um, at that point, I was on the lawyer track. I, I thought I wanted to be an attorney because um, there was a, at that point in my life, there was a, at least an interest in politics okay. or, or being in, in, in elected office. And I thought that the model said that I needed to be an attorney to do that. Um, but before that, I was uh, a geeky kid and wanted to be a computer scientist. So I got to college, uh, did one semester as, as a computer science major, and actually was good at it, but then decided or, or found out that you know computer scientists don't talk to a lot of people. They, <laughs> right. they sit in front of the computers right. and, and and make things happen. And I found out that I like the idea of connecting and, and and engaging with people. So you know you fast forward, you have this uh, kind of extensive student leadership experience. Then I get out of college. I move to Columbus, Ohio, for graduate school, and uh, take a job here at the local United Way in the area of diversity and inclusion, which is actually when you and I met. Yeah. Uh, way back then, and uh, when you were at the Urban League and I was at United Way, working in this area of, of diversity and, and race relations. And it got me to thinking about, um, we worked with a lot of consultants, and so it was, hey, these guys are being paid a lot more money than me for, for things <laughs> I don't think is a, are of high quality as I could produce. And so it got me to thinking about what was possible career-wise, and that got me to thinking about this entrepreneurial track. 
And so we started out as a firm, uh, I had a business partner at the time doing student leadership development. So we went back and taught the same skills that I had learned as a student leader. We worked with college campuses, um, developing their student leaders, working with the advisors who uh, work with student organizations on campus, trying to grow their skill set. And so, you know, you fast forward, that was almost 15 years ago now, but it, it really wasn't about being a CEO at that point. It really was about doing something that you love, doing it on your own terms, uh, creating a, a lifestyle for yourself. So people ask me, you know, did you have a business plan or did you uh, have this big strategic vision? And it, the answer is really no. I mean, at the end of the day, I started out, I got to Columbus and I my first conversation was um, when I was in graduate school was to go and talk to Bo, sat in his office when he was at the university. So we've been friends during that 15 years since I've been here. And so, you know, the pivot I think I made to CEO in terms of the mentality was when I decided that building an organization and building an enterprise was more important to me than doing the work. Mm -hmm. And so it got me to thinking that I can accomplish a lot more if I grow the team, if I grow skills of the people around me. Uh, and that probably happened seven, six or seven years into business. And so it wasn't the goal that I wanted to be a CEO. Yes, I was a CEO then because I was the only one right, in the business. Right. Right? Uh, and today it's, it's by choice. I could certainly have a smaller organization. We're not large. I mean, we're, we're nine people in terms of a staff. And then we subcontract about 10 or 12 people a year on different different projects. But it's not so much about the size of the company. It's about the mentality. And I'm much more interested today on developing people um, who are around me, um, setting a pathway for those on my team so they can have a meaningful career, um, being responsible for the livelihood of individuals is a burden. And, and I'm consciously making that decision to do that versus just being a one-person shop and only being concerned about me. Uh, and part of it is, quite honestly, about legacy building. Yeah. It really becomes this idea of, you know, do I have something to leave for my daughters that they can be proud of? And if they never decide to be a consultant or never decide to step into entrepreneurship, I still want them to have an example of what it looked like and what hard work looks like and what sacrifice looks like. And those things, that, those visions that they, I hope that they're getting from me, I think are transferable in any endeavor they would take on in life. So, you know, for me, I, I guess it, it wasn't so much a... a, um, a, a direct path, as you yeah. if might suggest. For me, it really was um, meandering to get to where I am today, but it's been it's been a great ride and it's something that I, would, I wouldn't trade for the world. Yeah, well, you know, I love the fact that neither one of you kind of had your sight set on being a CEO and just a number of forces coupled with very hard work, right? Accomplishments that you both had, relationships that you both had built really enabled you to get to that spot. So when you think about your time um, in, in, in the chair, what's the most gratifying thing that you didn't expect from being CEO? The most gratifying thing that I did not expect, um, boy, I, well, I, I'll say the most gratifying thing that I did expect was the ability to help transform other people's lives. Yeah. Um, uh, that certainly is the thing for me is having real power to be able to say, you don't have a place to sleep tonight. We're going to take care of that. And we're going to get you set up in your own apartment and having the resources to be able to do that and to see how that can transform uh, people's lives. That is clearly the most gratifying. Um, yeah, but on some level, the work that you were doing before you became a CEO was enabling that, right? So the work that you um, had access to when you were um, at the city council, when you were at the Urban League, those types of things. But um, talk about how it was a different level as CEO. Yeah. 
So, and I didn't actually have that when I was at those other positions. Like even in the role uh, that I had working with the city, I was an advocate mm -hmm. and I could fight on behalf of people if there were issues, but I didn't have the power to do something immediate. That's good. Um, and to be the CEO, even when someone falls through the cracks or they don't meet a compliance and then, you know, most people run into bureaucracy where, oh, I'm sorry, we can't help you, you know, such, such, you know, I had the power to be able to say, no, we're going to figure this out. Let me get on the phone or let me talk to so-and-so see if we can have other resources. And if not, then we will take responsibility yeah. and we'll do it. And so that is very gratifying. You can cut through the red tape, cut through the bureaucracy and get things done. Yeah, that's good. What about you, Mo? You know, I think the unintended thing has been being in a position to be able to kind of bless or support things that I care about and the community cares about. Uh, and that's in a number of ways. I mean, you know, you talk about, you know, time, talent, treasure, and I've given all of those things, I think, in, in significant ways. But I think just being in a position to, that, one, people call you and trust your judgment, right? And, and they probably look and say, if this person has built this enterprise from nothing and it's been sustained for over a decade, there's something there, right? Not from Columbus, no network here when I arrive. There's probably something there. But being one of those thinkers that people just call and say, Mo, I want to get your advice on this is, is, is gratifying for me to be able to see that you're respected in that way. Uh, I think the idea of being able to put some dollars behind some organizations and causes that are important to me uh, is it gratifying for me. But the other thing I think, and this, this really came to um, uh, as an example of this yesterday, is seeing my people grow on my team. I mean, and so we're an organization who, uh, in part, is always developing the people external to our organization. That's our work in a lot of ways. Uh, but I, I sat in a meeting yesterday with one of my team members and watch him do a presentation. And it was very much a uh, trial run for him. And I sat there just kind of in awe, like, wow, like, I know this guy, and he's only been with me a year. I know this guy a year ago, and I see him today, and just the mastery of the content and the ease of delivery was just amazing to me. And so it gave me this big dad moment. I don't have any boys, <laughs> I have all girls, but it gave me this big, big brother uh, dad moment where it was like, wow, he gets it. And to see, you know, people grow. And if I told you this guy's whole story, it'd be even more impactful. But to see him working in our organization to truly be one of those future leaders I can I can count on to get things done and with a level of competency, those things are amazing to me. So I didn't expect that. You know, okay. it was about making sure we always see that in our clients. But being able to see it for the folks whose, whose checks I sign is, is also just phenomenal. Yeah, that's nice. Mo, uh, Bo, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but I think a lot of times people have this preconceived notion of what it means to be a CEO. So long lunches, big money moves, elite events, you know, those power moves that, that you both obviously make. Um, so while those things are true on a certain level, one thing I know about both of you is that you both work really hard. You know, there's long nights. Um, and sometimes, you know, really having to gut things out. So talk about the less than glamorous side and maybe even the aspects of the job that you didn't anticipate when you started. Mo, you want to go first? Sure. You know, I, I think it's, you know, and we are both very much working CEOs. Right. Uh, you know, we, we are in organizations uh, that require us to be there a lot. And, and I talked about just a moment ago, then the, the, the opportunity you have then to lead within the community. So, you know, I'll tell you, you know, the, one of the biggest challenges I had that I wasn't expecting was when people call you too much, um, when you are on five boards and they all want time and treasure and, and, and talent, 
uh, to display. And that is a burden because it takes you away from the core work that you should be doing, but it's all important, right? right. And that becomes a challenge. It's, it's the, you know, how do I let this go? How do I not show up for this board meeting? Because the work there is also important, right? But at the same time, you have a team and a staff and clients who, in my case, who are dependent on you to, to deliver excellence to them. So that balancing act is is uh, is very difficult. I'm sure I know Bo experiences this too. We both have children, uh, small children who uh, at home, and so just learning that work life balance piece is is critically important. And we both are perfectionists and workaholics. Mm -hmm. So you put all that together, mm -hmm. uh, and it becomes a very difficult um, road. So you know some of those unintended consequences become you know eight, nine, ten p.m. nights uh, at the office trying to get something done. The late night proposals or grants you're trying to get out and. Um, uh, to make sure that your organization continues to run. Those are things that nobody talks about uh, when they're talking about the glamorous CEO job. They're very much a part of our day-to-day, -day, um, the way in which we live. And, and we have to have people around us who support that and, and are complementary to to the, the way we have to work. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I would piggyback. Um, being one of the few African-American kind of nonprofit leaders, you know, in, in, in this region, uh, you're called upon a lot to serve on advisory boards and committees. People want that perspective and you just get stretched uh, a little too thin. Uh, but beyond that is uh, there are aspects of it that are really glam glamorous and gratifying and being in the room, you know, with decision makers and trying to help shape what this um, community is going to look like in the future. Um, but a lot of the work is not that mm -hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. the other stuff. And I think people would be amazed um, at how much it is just dealing with emergencies, crisis, and personnel issues. We're an organization that prides ourselves on being a second chance um, opportunity kind of organization. And sometimes uh, we take chances on people who may not necessarily have the strongest backgrounds, but we want to work with them and develop them. And so I enjoy that. Um, but in that process, sometimes there are things that happen that seem to be out of the norm and so one of the daily kind of um, sayings that you know my senior staff would come into my office they said okay are you ready for your daily dose i can't make this shit up <laughs> uh, and they would tell me either some crazy stuff that's going on with either staff or with clients and you know one time we had a client outside protesting and picketing us and, <laughs> So, um, but I was able to bring her in my office. We were able to help her, but you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on that uh, it's just nitty gritty detail, um, kind of boring and sometimes painful uh, stuff that you have to deal with. There's the aspect of uh, the politics. Yeah. You know, we, we are heavily funded by government and you know, there's a lot of strings that get pulled with that. Um, at one time we were had to go through a recompetition because of some relationships that private sector companies had with um, elected officials who wanted to get at some of the funding that we received for our mm -hmm. weatherization program. It got really political. Uh, and so we found ourselves in a recompetition all across the state. And then uh, things, I don't know if it was intentional, um, but things were kind of rigged a certain way that favored another organization over us but the process was flawed. I was able to document how it was flawed, bring it to their attention. They still didn't want to do right. Uh, and so I had to appeal to the feds and uh, we won. Um, we got our program back. Um, but during that process, um, you know, I had to lay off uh, 20 people. Mm. And so, you know, I had a lot of sleepless nights when you think about people's livelihoods and I think about their families and I've gotten to know them. and. 
just how they now may be suffering. Here I am asking them to help serve low-income people, serve uh, impoverished people, and now, you know, they're one of them coming yeah. to us for services. And so, um, you know, that that's a heavy burden to, to carry sometimes, and I'm not sure that people think about all of those aspects of the job that come with that. I think you're right. I think people don't, you know. So, so when you think about those types of things that you both articulated, um, and, you know, kind of now looking back retrospectively to how you got to where you are, do you feel like you've essentially had to have on-the-job training <laughs> to be successful? Or did you feel like everything that you did up until now prepared you to sit in the seat? Well, that's a good one. I, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, you know, every mistake I made, every... Um, bad decision I made and for every bad one I've had a good one right so you know it's, it's I think the average is still in my favor I hope <laughs> uh, but, but I think ultimately uh, what I've learned is you got to chalk all that stuff up to tuition I mean every mistake you, that you made every uh, misstep everything you did right is all tuition and to get you where you are today and so I paid a lot of dues paid a lot of tuition over the course of these 15 years but you know you know for, for you know, Bo and I both started kind of this leadership journey very early and for me you know I started my company at 23 years old so I didn't have a lot to lose at that point. And so, you know, one of the things I try to impress upon uh, groups that I talk to is, you know, if you're going to leap, leap early, because you can always go find a job. I mean, you know, the market, if you're talented, I mean, yeah, the market's always tough. But if you're really talented and you're um, savvy enough to really be a CEO to start with, you won't have a problem getting a job later on. But there's n no other comfort, probably, uh, comfortable phase in your life in those early 20s when you are thinking about what life's going to mean for you. I just encourage people to, to leap. Uh, early in life before they get the, the kids and the mortgage and the the, the, the big uh, job that they can't seem to leave, but they really have this entrepreneurial passion. I want folks to get out there and really get comfortable with their own successes and failures, but being the captain of those for themselves and not allowing somebody else to dictate what those things are in their life. And, and I think if you can get there early, make those mistakes early, then your path is, is going to be much more successful uh, in a shorter period of time than some folks. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, I I would say I don't regret any of the decisions I've made because they've been learning experiences that have helped shape uh, the person I am and, and the opportunities that were, I was able to pursue. But it is important to learn from those lessons. So Mo talked about paying dues and chalking it up as to tuition. I agree with that. And I will often quote, uh, and you'll see a poster in my uh, office uh, from Michael Jordan where he says, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games, 26 times I've been counted on to take the game-winning shot and missed. I failed over and over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. So it's, it's not necessarily the failure, but what you learn from that and learning how to fall down, but more importantly, how to get back up and to get back up stronger. Um, so really learning from those lessons uh, and then that, I think, prepares you to make better decisions in the future. And when you've seen similar kind of circumstances, you know how to navigate, um, how to connect with people and know that you can't do it all on your own, but connect with people and strategically navigate situations. So th those are the kinds of things that I think I've been able to learn. Um, but, but that learning from those experiences is so critical because I see some of even my own friends it seems like they keep having to go through the same lesson mm. over and over again. I'm like, I'm not sure you're gleaning from this lesson what you need to help you make a better decision the next time. And, but you know, I, I totally agree with you. And I think one of the things we talk about a lot in terms of leadership development work is 
um, people taking introspection time, um, time to reflect on what, yes. what it is that's happening. And we, and we don't do that enough. I think as many leaders don't, or, or just employees or any, don't, don't, don't think about why did I make that decision and what was driving my behavior at that point? What forces that I feel that were against me that may or may not have been a factor in the decisions that I made? And so that introspection time where it's you spending time with you. Uh, and I used to actually make it a point every year to go off for a couple of days, leave my family, leave my home, and go sit in a, a blank room and think through what I wanted my year to be because it was important for me to reflect on what I just came out of from the previous year and then think about where I wanted to go. And if you don't force yourself to spend that kind of time when you are in a career that's demanding, people always have a need, uh, family is going to be important, all those other factors, and never spend time thinking about some of the decisions you make, some of you didn't make, and why you didn't do some things uh, a bit differently, then you don't grow from them in the same way. And I think too often we're on this rat race of doing activity with yeah. no productivity. Yeah. Uh, and you know what I mean? And so those things become important. I think just taking that time to reflect, I think it's been critically important for me, and I know other leaders have said the same thing as well. Yeah. So I want to switch gears slightly. So last year, Fortune Magazine did this really interesting series on black men in the C-suite. So their study looked at the issue in corporate America. And then at the same time last year, the Annie Casey Foundation funded a report produced by the Building Movement Project. The report was titled Race to Lead, and it looked at the issue of people of color in nonprofit um, leadership positions. So result, results excuse me, from both were fairly disappointing, particularly in this day and age. So less than 1% of CEOs in Fortune 500 companies are African-American, and the percentage of people of color in executive director or CEO roles in nonprofit organizations has remained under 20% for the last 15 years, even as the country becomes more diverse. So hearing these statistics, um, you're each what somebody might consider a unicorn of sorts, two highly successful African-American men who have risen to the C-suite albeit by two different paths. So we talked a little bit earlier about how you did it, but talk now about the challenges that you faced on the way to the top. Bo? Boy, uh, that's hard for me because I, I have to say uh, I was very fortunate and blessed um, to be in a position to take advantage of the opportunity when it became available. Um, I know a lot of people pay a lot of dues and, and time to get to those kinds of positions, but I happen to be the beneficiary of um, great circumstances. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I will take credit for, you know, my own preparation and being ready for that opportunity. Um, but the opportunity has to be there because I've seen p plenty of people who I think are ready. You know, we were talking earlier, you know, uh, one person I was trying to recruit initially was Sean Carter. I can tell you without a doubt, I know he's ready to lead an organization. Um, I think about your experience, Kiana, um, and how you've led um, even the Human Service Chamber in navigating that. So I think you're more than ready to, to lead a nonprofit Um by the way, I heard that the YWCA may be open. Uh, <laughs> I see you recruiting. <laughs> uh, and I do, I have the opportunity to sit on the search committee for the new president of CODA. Uh, so that's been an interesting experience learning about that and uh, looking at issues of diversity. Um, but I will have to say that, um, you know, there are a lot of barriers that people will generally face. Um, I didn't have to face uh, a lot of those. Um, I had the fortune of having a nonprofit board uh, that was very diverse. It was probably about 50% uh, 
uh, African-American, 50% uh, white, and you don't normally see that in, in nonprofit boards. Uh, typically, they're majority white. Um, and so I think that has something to do with the openness to an African-American leader. Um, I also had an organization that had gone through some turmoil and had to rebuild. Um, you know, we often find ourselves as African-Americans coming in to help clean up an organization that has had problems. Uh, so I was very much in that situation uh, and I was still young. Um, but had built a reputation in the community as a trustworthy person who could kind of unite people to um, help move this organization forward. And so, so I was fortunate in, in that regard, but I do know that there are many institutional barriers uh, that a lot of uh, leaders, uh, African-American leaders face. And um, some of that means, you know, we need to reorient the community uh, and these nonprofit boards to um, make sure that they're aware of um, these issues because we often will run with the narrative of, well, what can we do to um, address the deficits of these leaders who aren't prepared for these roles when in fact, many of us do have the experience, the education, the background, but need the opportunity and need a board that's gonna be supportive in helping us navigate all of those um, different landmines and challenges that we might face. So it's really that support structure yeah. I think that's important. Yeah, I, I think that's good. What about you, Mo? Um, challenges? You know, one of the things I think about that study is that, you know, it looks at a lot of corporate organizations, right? And, and we know that the paradigm for African-American C-suite executives is one that is very narrow in terms of, of how diverse you can be. And I don't mean in terms of color, I mean in terms of behavior, in terms of how you approach work, how you think. I mean, there's a certain box that you can't get too far on the left or the right of that box to be successful in large corporate organizations. In my instance, it's different, right? Because I think that what we are seeing, whether it's a hip hop mogul who's turned a, a music empire into fashion, into real estate, into some other endeavor, is that the model is changing that we don't have to fit into those molds anymore. And so I think one of the things we've got to start um, encouraging our young African-American um, youth to, to think about is that you know, success can look like what you want to create it to be and not so much what the traditional CEO of Fortune 500 um, uh, might look like. The reality is that there aren't that many jobs. I mean, you know, C-suite opportunities for people of color. Um, I mean, sheer numbers don't support that. But in terms of opportunity, uh, if you are a creative thinker who thinks about opportunities differently, if you are bringing something to the table the market needs, the market is going to dictate that you're going to be successful and nobody can keep that away from you. And so then you've got to have a different set of skills to be savvy about when the deal comes, when you take it and what the deal should be, not to get um, taken advantage of in that situation. So, yeah, I think the way in which we, 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 we teach our um, young African-American leaders, um, the skill set is changing, what they need to be successful, and the model for that is changing. And, but I don't think it's, it's got to be that you choose a, a C-suite organization that has 100,000 employees in one. If that's your path, I mean, that's great, but it's not the only path. I think we've got to be open to that. The other thing is that you know we've got to be decision makers, uh, and we've got to leverage when we are decision makers. So Bo talked about being on the local, uh, on the code of um, search committee. I was on the, the United Way search committee for the new CEO. And to hear those conversations when you're in the room, um, there is an unconscious bias. And we need to be able to call that out very explicitly, right? It's almost like when you're doing a big search like that, probably orientation should include something about unconscious bias. Because to hear the conversation, and these are folks who I love and respect and work with for years, but to hear the perspective 
they bring and what they do and don't pick up on, um, the way in which they phrase questions to people who look like me uh, and you, it's just different. And, I, and we've got to understand that either intended or unintended, that racism is still real. It is running rampant. And we're talking about institutional barriers that are keeping people from even being considered for the opportunity to lead. Not them not doing a good job. We're talking about you even being able to get into the room to be considered. The process is rigged in a lot of cases in our favor, sometimes consciously and sometimes unconsciously. And I think we've got to address that. Yeah. So, you know, you both kind of talk about some of the things that um, organizations should start doing, right? So the unconscious bias training, the thinking about the composition of the board, um, you know, that Bo talked about. So, yeah, the issue is prevalent in corporate organizations, right? So 1% um, and to your point, Mo, there's only so many positions. But even in nonprofit organizations, right? Like this is what often strikes me so much. When you think about who is often accessing the services, um, the majority of the services, right? Generally people of color. And yet, I mean, we can look locally, you know, not a lot of diversity um, at those um, higher levels in organizations, you know, even beyond the CEO, right? COO positions, vice president positions, so on and so forth. So what is it that um, organizations are um, having such a difficult time addressing these issues? So it's the unconscious bias, obviously, but but what else? I mean, because if, you, if you're looking at the doors, right, if I'm the CEO of XYZ organization, I'm looking at the door, I'm seeing who's coming into my organization, right? And so is there a disconnect um, around maybe I should ensure that the composition of my organization mirrors the population that I'm serving for all of these reasons? Well, you know, you're talking about it in our world certainly is that whole idea of cultural competency, right? How do you make sure that your staff and board are appropriately representative of the, the folks in which you serve. So it's, it's work we do every day, but I, I'll tell you, you know, no, you know, it goes back to the old adage, you know, power can seize nothing without demand. And if I am in a position of power, um, again, rightfully so, or because I had a hookup, whatever those are, if I am not of color and I, and the system is working for me, I have no incentive, no incentive whatsoever to be more diverse in terms of my hire, more diverse in terms of my perspective until it's not working for you anymore. And so part of you know what I like about the work that Bo uh, and his team does here, do here at Impact, it's about self-sufficiency. It's about, yes, you may be in crisis today, but the, the goal is to get you to a mentality that says, I can one day be self-sufficient and I'm gonna have the resources to support me until that's my reality. Those things are important, but, but without that mentality, you've got people who are saying, we're gonna make decisions for you and about you without ever engaging you. And so you've gotta have really progressive leaders who really believe that um, the people who you're serving are, are not just um, service recipients, they're also future leaders in your organization. So I love what they're doing here in terms of allowing this, the, the former recipients of service or maybe even the current ones to also be on the staff. Right. Because that's when you get in the room a true perspective about what's going on out there. I sit in too many conversations in this community with people who are very disconnected to what's really happening on the ground. Having conversations about millions and millions of dollars of resources and never really having talked to the folks who might supposedly are going to be recipients or beneficiaries of these services. And, and Bo knows it too. I mean, you know, what we see is a community who, you got folks who live in other communities coming into our community 
telling us what's best for us. And that's been the case for so long. And so I think we've got, but, but I think it's on us to do the step up to want to be not just the, the person applying for the job, but also to be the person who's willing to give that time and talent and treasure to sit on those boards, to be in elective office, to be to make those decisions. If we don't have people who share our value system in decision-making capacities, uh, it's never going to change. Yeah, that's really good. Anything you would add to that, Bo? You know, I, whenever I think of issues of um, racism and, and, and race in general, I really look at it um, as both behavioral and structural. And oftentimes we, we get caught up in this argument as it's one or the other. When people have, you know, stereotypes about the poor, you know, they think of poor black people who don't want to work. Um, and that, you know, it's it's a behavioral issue and they just need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps um, without acknowledging the structural barriers that are really in place. Um, when we talk about the intersection of poverty and race and, you know, we, we held that we have this 4% unemployment rate here in Columbus, Ohio, um, but we're not really highlighting the fact that, you know, that unemployment rate is closer to 50% for, you know, African-American men 18 to 24 who live in certain zip codes. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for me, I think it has to be a balance of both. I think we have to be honest and saying, okay, there are some things that we can do differently um, as, as people who have been oppressed. Sometimes we can often become agents of the racism uh, when it becomes internalized. So I've seen where in some respects, when we talk about the power of the position where you may have black faces in high places, but they're just trying to hold on to the seat that they have as kind of like this gatekeeper of who can get that validation uh, that they are a safe African-American to work with. Um, what Manor Jackson called a scared Negro syndrome. Scared Negro syndrome. I, I've right. seen it. I've seen it. Um, and so often I just, I want, I want, I want to be affiliated with leaders who are just going to be free to be themselves yeah. and to use their power to do what they believe is in the best interest of all people. Um, but also appreciating the fact that um, you have uh, particularly in our situation, people who have been oppressed and, and face significant barriers that may be different and apart from those that, um, you know, white poor people may face. Um, so just acknowledging that and trying to bring a comprehensive solution to solving it. So for me, it's really being honest about what are those issues that are both behavioral, but also structural and how do we really have a comprehensive solution to overcome them? Yeah. So, you know, I thought that the race to lead report had a pretty compelling call to action. So the results call into question this common assumption that to increase the diversity of nonprofit leaders, people of color need more training. And Bo, you kind of touched on this a little bit. So the findings pointed to a new narrative. To increase the number of people of color leaders, the nonprofit sector needs to address the practices and, as Mo said earlier, biases of those governing nonprofit organizations. Rather than focus on the perceived deficits of potential leaders of color, the sector should concentrate on educating nonprofit decision makers on the issues of race, equity, um, and implicit bias accompanied by changes in action leading to measurable results. This transfers the responsibility for the racial leadership gap from those who are targeted, so people of color, to those who oversee organizations as well as the sector overall. Does this call to action resonate with the both of you? Oh, I love it. I love it because as I talked about um, 
behavioral and structural, the reality is that um, we each, uh, both parties have a personal responsibility. Um, I think that we still have a responsibility to, to bring our A game, to stay sharp. Um, but also there's a personal responsibility on these governing boards for them to check their own implicit biases and to be more informed about what's really going on and understanding. I had a very interesting experience um, two days ago uh, where Amy Clavin, former executive director of Homeport, had invited me to be a part of a group. She took um, uh, some uh, the editor and the staff writers of Business First on a tour of um, the King Lincoln District in Linden, and it was eye-opening. You know, as as Mo talked about, you know, even people that you know and care about, and you know, some of their their assumptions or questions that they have, things that they don't know. And and let me say, legitimately. Um, you know, the folks who, who were in that van, I thought, asked very good questions, um, but I was amazed at um, how little they really knew mm -hmm. about what it's like to look through the eyes of a seven-year-old African-American girl on her way to school um, and what she's seeing and facing. Um, it, it was quite amazing. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think that there's a responsibility uh, on both parts. Uh, for us as individuals, I do believe in self-sufficiency and self-reliance, um, but that does not negate the fact that there are real barriers uh, and that there are people in positions of power who have an obligation uh, to be more informed about what those barriers are, what their biases are, and how do we collectively as a community uh, overcome that. Uh, that is what we call the Columbus way. Mm -hmm. um, but we need to be a little bit more informed about how we actually get things done. Yeah, excellent. What do you think, Mo? Well, you know, I, what Bo said got me to thinking about, you know, just the need overall. I mean, you look at everything that's going on nationally from Charlottesville to so many other um, experiences we, as a nation we've gone through. And I think we've got to get serious about having um, real conversations about race, too. I mean, there's no other way to get at some of this until you bring to the forefront um, right or wrong that people have very differences, uh, different opinions about race and about people uh, of various groups. And uh, it, it was interesting to me, and my own kind of CEO check moment was, you know, right after Charlottesville, uh, I actually coming coming back into the country when it was all going on. And then I got back to the office and I got thinking about it. I said, you know, when's the last time we've had an internal, so we, 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 we were doing D&I work, we're in the diversity and inclusion space, we, we work with organizations around cultural competency as our work. But I had to challenge and say, when's the last time we've had a conversation internally about, and my, my staff is diverse, but when have we had an internal conversation about race or, or even just sitting around the water cooler, talk, talking around the water cooler about what's going on nationally and what my team thinks about it. And so I had to get, so I, I devoted a whole staff meeting to having a conversation about that. And it was still eye-opening because I have young, in this case, young white millennials, right? And their views, even among the two of them, were very different in terms of where they grew up and how they perceive what's going on in the world and how they perceive and look at issues of color and race. And so I, I just think... There's got to be a, a genuine conversation. I think people of color have got to um, relax a bit sometimes about allowing those who are truly ignorant about our culture to be truly ignorant. Yeah. It's okay not to know. It, it's not okay not to want to know, yeah. right? And so I think you've got to be in a position to allow people to have a space to say, listen, I just want to ask you, Kiana, as a black woman, you know, what do y'all think about stuff like this, right? And you may have to say back to them, I can't speak for everybody. This is what I think about it. But pe we, we are so tense as a nation 
uh, around having those conversations that it, it, it makes everybody not have any conversation. And I think that's manifesting itself in a lot of different ways. Yeah, that's good. Are you going to say something? I think that's an important point. And, and really, that's what I was trying to get to with the, the tour that we mm -hmm. went on. You know, I was surprised by some of the questions, but I also appreciated yeah. the fact that it was being asked and that we had an opportunity to educate um, and so, yeah, we have to be open to asking or answering some of those questions at times. I had that experience when I was in the military where they weren't bad people, but it was people who had not really um, interacted with a lot of African-Americans. And so some of their questions were very ignorant, mm -hmm. but legitimately, they just don't know. Yeah. And they were curious. So right. we have to be open. And that's where the open, honest conversation needs to happen. And people need to be able to ask a question without sounding like they're being racist. But, you know, oftentimes their questions are coming from stereotypes and yeah. generalizations that they may or may not be fully conscious of. And as long as they're open to uh, hearing um, a different perspective and hearing, uh, you know, the truth as, as an African-American man, as I would speak it, and, um, be open to uh, ongoing conversation. Right. I think that's how we begin to resolve it. Well, yeah, and it's that idea of being willing to kind of put yourself in a different place and situation. So the fact that they were willing to get into a van and go try to figure out what the life experience of a seven-year-old black girl is, yeah. right, hopefully to inform that experience in a positive way is the way that you start that. And then I think to both of your points is this idea of how do you ask the question in a way that honors my experience, yeah. but to Mo's point, me being open to sharing those experiences as well. So, you know, one of the things that I'm interested in, Mo, and, and, you, and you talked about the career path, but any of these issues that we're talking about right now, were any of them a catalyst for you deciding to step out on your own? So, you know, your decision to launch your own business, was it prompted in any way by a sense that the kind of traditional leadership trajectory may not be as equitable as you would have liked it to be? No, I mean, I, I probably wasn't that savvy when I started, but it certainly has informed um, how we've navigated the business since, you know, since, since then. I mean, 15 years, I've learned a, a lot. But I, I do think it was, I mean, so we started out doing leadership development for co college students, most of them HBCU college students. And so that was driven by the fact that we're going to need a different set of skills to compete. And so how do we make sure that we are incubating at our historically black colleges and universities a, a cadre of talent of color who understand how to go beyond those walls and be effective and savvy uh, in a world that doesn't look like them um, in the majority. And so it was driven by that piece about growing um, young African-American leaders. I can't say it was about this whole world change or building, you know, but it was, it started at this very genuine place of saying, we're going to need a different set of skills. We're going to need to be able to engage in a different way. How can I contribute to leaders who can do that more effectively? So, and I think that's where we started. And then we've learned, I think, over time that that whole idea of efficacy and the whole idea of needing to invest in African-American leadership is important. It's one of the reasons why Bo and I both have involvement with the African-American Leadership Academy, as do you. Programs like that, that say, you are the project, let's be intentional about developing leaders of color, because when you have good leaders of color, you have better leaders in general. And then we, we take away the opportunity for you to say they're not ready, they're not trained, 
Um, they don't have the experience. If we can take away those artificial barriers, we can get to the real uh, nitty gritty about if you don't choose this candidate, it's not because they weren't prepared. Yeah. So why was it? And yeah. that opens up a different conversation. Yeah, that's good. That's good. You know, it makes me think about um, the Fortune article. So Bernard Tyson, who's the CEO of Kaiser Permanente, he talked about having the opportunity and the obligation to change the narrative around race. So do both of you feel that similar opportunity as well as the obligation in your roles? Yeah, I definitely do. Um, and really here recently, I, I really started to understand the importance of telling the story. Um, oftentimes, even with organizations like mine who have been successful, we get results. Um, but what we have not been the best at is telling our story. Um, those who are in the know know the quality of our work, but there are some who tell a better story out there, even though they may not get the results. And so changing that narrative, um, having the opportunity to inform a wider audience, the key decision makers about the work that we're doing, the results that we're getting. Um, you know, I can say that some of that's been on me. I haven't done the best job of reaching out and informing and letting people know. I remember a comment that uh, a leader at a nonprofit foundation had made said that they really just don't know, they know me, but they don't know my organization and what we do. Um, and so uh, I've been more intentional now about trying to get out there and tell that story. Uh, and uh, I think that it is an opportunity and an obligation uh, because we need to, I think, combat some of the preconceived notions that people have about uh, the abilities of African-American leaders in general. Mm -hmm. yeah. What do you think about that, Mo? Do you feel that opportunity and obligation? Yeah, I, I do. Uh, I think um, you know one of the best ways that African-American leaders can um, can show up is really to do just that is to show up and I mean just I mean presence but it's also about what Bo said bring your A-game uh, every time. You know the reality is we don't get uh, a second chance for a first impression oftentimes when, you know, you can go and uh, folks in other communities can go and reinvent themselves 12 times and you're like, wow, they got fired from there and they turned up over here. It's like, well, how in the hell did that <laughs> right, happen? Right. Right? And for us, it would be a death nail. I mean, in so many cases, it's, you're leaving this community because you, we don't, we can't bounce back the same way. And so it is both an opportunity, but it's also a burden because Bo knows that every day he gets up and walks in his, his organization that he's got to be so thoughtful about the decision he makes it sometimes can cause him to second guess himself. At least, I, I, let me mm -hmm. just speak for myself. It, it causes me to be like, should we do that? Should we be vocal about that? Can we support that um, publicly? Uh, and so those things you know, do make it a burden in terms of, yes, you're in position and you're probably in a position to be able to say some things and have people in other communities to listen. But is that when it becomes a question, is that your burden? Right. Is it your responsibility? Can you weather the storm if there's one that comes from that? And so those are both uh, opportunities, but they also come at a price. And so it, it's a tough call. You know, and it's funny that you say that because the, the other side of that coin is, right, so you're balancing what you can say, what you can't say, all of those types of things. And then you have another group of people, right, mm -hmm. who's like, why didn't Mo yes, speak right. out on That's this? Right. Exactly. Bo should have been at this table. You know, That's it's right. that yeah. struggle as well, right? Yeah. No doubt about it. No yeah. doubt about people, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It, it, you know, and I think in some ways it goes back to that, that thing that people don't think about when they say, I want to sit in that same chair, mm. right? It goes back to that glamorous life. They're not thinking about that duality that you're constantly having to 
try to figure out and at the same time be able to go home and sleep at night, right? Boy, that is the push-pull. I mean, some people think you should be more visible and speak out more. Some think, you know, you should stay focused and quiet and just focus on the work and not speak out on issues. But I actually believe that we should. So I like what Colin Kaepernick has done. Mm -hmm. Um, And now you have the situation with Michael Bennett. So Mm -hmm. it's increasing the awareness of America that, no, this isn't just some random person who probably deserved to be treated the way they were treated, um, but that actually we got some real issues that are impacting people that we know and care about. um, And we're raising awareness. So I believe we we do have that obligation to speak out. Yeah, I mean, I think Colin is is such a great example because you think about the arc of that, right? Mm -hmm. So when it started, right, no support, right? right? I mean, even in in some ways from other players in similar situations as he was, right? And so now, Negro syndrome. Absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. And in some ways, we've had a 180 where, you know, you have, you know, half of a team taking a knee, you know, like the, the Browns did. And so, you know, I think this idea of, you know, standing firm to your convictions, right? Standing in what you know is right is what we're seeing from him, even potentially. And, you know, in some ways, you know, he probably has more opportunity to do it because, you know, hopefully he has significant money in the bank that he can do it longer than some other people can. Well, and I think that, you know, speaks to this whole idea of, you got to find your lane right. in this whole I, this whole conversation too, right? So yeah, there's some things I can speak out on, but I may not be informed enough to speak out on them, and it may not be a passion for me. So saying me being able to say, oh yeah, Bo should have been vocal on that, is not fair to my critique of Bo because I don't know what's driving him personally, nor might I know his own internal thoughts about it. So I think you've got to find your lane, right? But you know, in my instance, I'm not a rally leader. That's not I don't choose to march. That's not who I am uh, fundamentally. But I am very savvy in a boardroom. When people are having conversations about how systems need to change to benefit communities in a better way, I'm your guy, right? I can be in that conversation and be very uh, both savvy and um, also informed in that room and persuasive. So that's my lane, right? And I I, I know that about myself. So part of this is is not about um, what you are and are not vocal about in a visible way. It's really about finding where you can be most effective. In some cases, that's going to be with a bullhorn outside, and in other cases, that's going to be with a pen internal to an organization. So, you know, it, it's really, I think that's important to figure out who you are and where you can thrive and what lane you can play to, to further the conversation. Well, yeah, and, and I mean, I think the other thing is, I mean, both of you, obviously, um, members of Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity. So the fraternities all, you know, were an early, you know, instance of people providing development sure. within the race, right? Yeah. So, so I think that that's always an example of um, give back as well, right? Yeah. One thing I don't want to lose sight of, though, is we talked about Colin Kaepernick. He is now paying the price yeah. for that mm-hmm. advocacy yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, clearly, one of the better quarterbacks in the league, but has not landed a position. Yeah. And so, oftentimes, um, when you do speak out, you become a target. Uh, and so, we need to, I think, as a community. Uh, be savvy in how we support our leaders. Um, And to Mo's point, um, you know, we often lead in different ways. And so people have to, you know, let's not put ourselves into a, a, a box where we only see leadership as the charismatic out front, you know, rallying the troops kind of leader. We all lead in different ways. We all have different assignments. Uh, The most important thing is for us to have a common, common agenda and shared vision yeah. and how we support and navigate 
to better our community. Absolutely. So, you know, and Bo, you kind of touched on this earlier, but I remember having a conversation with an African-American executive. um, And one of the things that he talked about was this idea that when African-Americans generally are called to lead, it's an organization that's in a turnaround situation, an organization that's struggling. Um, it's, it's rare that you see an African-American leader, particularly we, we were talking about the nonprofit sector getting um, the top seed in a major organization, big budget, so on and so forth. So if, if you guys had to identify what you think the prevailing issue for leaders looking to make it to the C-suite is, what would you say that is? Mm. I'm gonna let Mo go first. <laughs> You know, I, I think we've really got to be savvy about relationship development. Um, I mean, particularly if that's your goal, right? And many times, and we are very comfortable with people who we know and who look like us, and so are other communities. And so in order to overcome that, you've got to get very intentional about building relationships to, uh, around people that you typically wouldn't be around, um, going into circles that you might not typically want to go in. So if my natural Wednesday afternoon ritual would be to call Bo and say, let's go here to have a drink, Every now and then, even if I go with Bo, we might need to go to a different bar or to a different reception or to a different place so that we can get some new relationships going. Um, So I think, you know, this whole idea of because at the end of the day, if it comes down to uh, and I think, you know, Bo quotes is better than me. I think, you know, this whole idea of um, all things being equal. I want to do business with my friends. All things not being equal. I want to do business with my friends. So, you know, it's this whole idea of, you know, having true relationships, I think, are important. Right. And people, when they're comfortable with you as a leader, as an individual, tend to look the other way on things like race or even in some cases, you're the second one that comes to their mind. But because they know you, you might be the first that comes to their mind in that instance. So I think we've got to get better at this idea of relationship building. I struggle with this, quite honestly. Um, I've always been about the work and the work sometimes gets inhibited by the ability of people to see the work, which means I've got to have better relationships, better sponsors out there, better tentacles into other communities where they can look and know the value of what I bring to the table. But if you really are interested in that pathway, I think you've got to get intentional about relationship development in a a different way. Yeah, I I mean, we talked about that in African American Leadership Academy, so that's a shared experience that the three of us had. Um, And oftentimes we see our path to um, career successes, gaining more technical expertise and knowledge, acquiring the skills that we need to get to that next level. But what we find, and the research bears out, is that it's really those areas of social, relational, and political savvy that will determine, you know, who really kind of moves up that ladder. So, I mean, to Mo's point, it's it's the relationship building, it's uh, the networking, it's the being savvy politically and being strategic. It's connecting with people and um, soliciting their help uh, in supporting you. So in African American leadership, uh, we often talk about uh, in corporate. Um, for a lot of African Americans who have been successful, they had that sponsor, mm-hmm. that person who had power at the top, who really groomed them um, for those opportunities. And so when you're in the nonprofit world, oftentimes we don't have that. So you kind of got to figure it out on your own or you got to create your own community and networks uh, to get the support that you need to be successful. But the social relational, even more than the technical competence and skill, 
Uh, I think it's so critical and, and a prevailing issue that will determine future success. Yeah. You know, the other thing that I think is important, I talk about this in my book, um, and it's also the reason why I wanted the two of you on here is, is I think people have to get really clear about why you want to be CEO, right? Mm -hmm. Like you really need to understand what that role is, um, the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? And know for sure that that's the work that you want to do. Because Mo, you had made a point earlier about, you know, the CEO ended up being the title, but you were really focused on what the work, what the outcomes that you wanted your work to have. Right. And so I think a lot of times people see a title and they're aspiring to a title versus versus being really clear on what is the work and, and what is the accomplishment that you want to have. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think you're absolutely right. And I, and I think uh, we've had this conversation, I believe, but you know, I am probably your ideal COO mm -hmm. uh, at the end of my, I, I thrive every day on developing people, um, getting results, having the metrics to support that, uh, being able to tell organization story. I mean, that's where I, the, the, the grip and grin and the, um, the social uh, relational part of the job for me is a, is a work essential, but it's not the fit, my favorite thing to do. I, I am, and people are shocked by this, but I'm naturally an introvert, uh, but I have to have play extrovert on TV day, <laughs> right, right? Right. because that's how this, this is my livelihood. So I think, you know, even for, and I don't let that be a cop-out, right? And I talk to folks who say, well, I'm an introvert, so it's hard, harder for me yeah. to develop relationships. It may be, but it's, it's just as important as anybody else. And it doesn't mean you can't have tremendous depth in your relationships. Uh, it just means you're going to approach them very differently. But I think, yeah, I think, I think yeah, uh, we've got to be clear about what the job is you really want. Because ultimately, uh, you may just want to be a, a great tactician, uh, somebody who's very technically proficient and wants to reach the, t the height of that career um, in terms of skill, and that may never mean you are the person in the C-suite. And you've got to figure out uh, if, if that's okay with you or not, right? And so this whole idea of what's my motivation to get to that role becomes important, right? Um, for me, it was to start out about the work. I was the only one, so I was by default CEO. Today, it's more of a choice. Yeah. Um, but And I, I choose the days I want to be actually in the work um, versus leading the work or developing others to be able to do the work. So uh, it's, it's a conscious decision today, but I think people have got, to your point, have got to be much more intentional about what does the role really entail and is that something I want? Right. There's a lot of miserable CEOs out there Absolutely. too. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I remember one of the most insightful comments I heard from uh, Wally Bakari when he was uh, here working at Time Warner is he said, I aspire to become the chief operating officer of a Fortune 500 company. I said, wow, that's interesting. I was like, I've never heard anyone say that. He said, well, I used to say CEO until I really began to understand what that role meant. He said, you know, dealing with the board and the politics and externally, he was like, that's not what I'm interested in. He said, I'm really interested in the services. Uh, I'm interested in the people, developing people, creating systems. Um, you know, helping the organization become stronger. He said, so really, I aspire to be the COO. And I was like, mm, I thought that was very yeah, insightful. Yeah. Um, and, and to Mo's point, I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm also an introvert. Um, but I've rationalized that extroverts have more fun and have more <laughs> success. So I have to turn on my extrovert um, abilities at times. But I'm also a person that... Uh, I will disappear for weeks um, yeah. and just kind of in my cocoon, kind of recharging. Absolutely. So yeah. you got to balance it. Absolutely. Okay. So last question. I think you you both have done a real good job articulating kind of the call to action to organizations around unconscious bias, cultural competence. If you had to identify kind of a final 
um, call to action for leaders of color who um, are trying to be successful, trying to navigate um, their path upwards, what would that be? Well, for me, um, I would say uh, be true to yourself. You know, be who you are. You, you can't try and fit into what someone else wants you to be or perceives you to be. Um, you got to have a plan, more than just an idea, a plan, a well thought out plan of how you want to move and then tap your network and solicit support for how you want to move things forward. Uh, that's it for me. Okay. Thanks, Bo. Mo? Yeah, I would say the same thing. I think the quote um, may not be exact, but, you know, by Warren Benison, it's the mantra that Leadership Academy is, you know, in order to become a leader, you must first become who you are, become who you are. And I think that speaks to the whole idea of getting very comfortable with self. Uh, and we work a lot on this with leaders because at the end of the day, when you know, understand yourself and the people around you, you navigate the world with a lot more ease. And so being very comfortable about, you know, what your motivators are, what your stressors are, um, what things will um, cause you to perk up in the morning, what things really, really cause you to dread going to work. Though Getting clear about those things, regardless if they are part of your job today or not, but being very clear about those things help you go into an interview and articulate what your real vision is, how you would change an organization, what things you would want off of your plate so you could do more of the things that really, really bring you joy. So one, one of the books that I really have, um, have honed in on this last year is this book called Essentialism. This is the idea of being able to say more, I'm sorry, being able to say no more so you can say yes to the things that actually uh, are important to you. And so this whole idea of what's essential in your life, right? And how do you get to a place where you can say, I'd love to do that, but no. And being and having a firm no um, uh, uh, paradigm is very, very important. And so I think, you know, the idea of getting rid of the, the no ways in your life so you can be more focused on the things that really bring you value and joy, those are, um, you know, that's the one thing I think leaders have got to get better at, knowing themselves, figuring out what's really important, and then the rest of the stuff will fall into place. Yeah, excellent. All right, guys. So before we wrap up, I can't let you get out of here without a game of 20 questions. So are you up for that? Yes. All right. So let's Maybe. go. <laughs> okay. So what's the best book you've read in the last 12 months? I think, Mo, you got a little head start on that one. Sounds like it's The Essentialism. Absolutely. I just think it's a book about, again, how to figure out what's important to you, saying no to more stuff so you can say yes to the things that really matter. Uh, all of my reading has been focused on medical marijuana as I am uh, looking to be a partner in an organism or a group that is going after a license for cultivation. Uh, so it's not good reading in that way, but it's more about I want to be an entrepreneur like Mo. I love it. I love it. But the one I am looking forward to reading now is Black Prayer Bleach by uh, Charlemagne. Yeah. Yeah. My um, ex-husband actually got that for my son. Okay. So it's been interesting watching him read that and uh, take away jewels. Yeah. So if what's your go-to book recommendation? You know, I'm a, I'm a organizational development guy, so I always go back to Collins, Good to Great. I think um, regardless if you're leading a small or a big organization, I mean, those three, you know, fundamental questions for even for individuals to think about, you know, what can you be the best in the world at, what are you deeply passionate about, and what drives your economic engine are three questions that a nonprofit can employ, an individual can employ as they're thinking about changes in their life, or a large organization can employ. So Jim Collins, Good to Great, is one I often recommend to folks. How about you, Bill? Uh, depending on who I'm talking to, um, if it's uh, African-Americans, young African-Americans looking for, you know, some, some insight, 
uh, Survival Strategies for Africans Living in America, 13 Steps to Freedom by Anthony Browder. Um, I also like Outliers uh, by Malcolm Gladwell. Okay. About what's the best business advice you'd give to someone? Um, I think what I talked about earlier, you got to have a plan and share it with your network and work your plan. Okay. Miles? I have this principle I call awe, author your work in excellence. And I, I, I think at the end of the day, if your work is excellent, uh, it will speak for itself. Okay. Love that. Best advice you've ever been given? Just be yourself. That seems so simple, but it's so important. Um, because if you really want to have success, to me, part of that means being happy. And you're not going to be happy in a place where you feel like you've had to totally alter who you are to fit in. So I say be yourself and then find alignment um, in work, life, and uh, career. Okay. Best advice. Well, uh, somebody said that decisions are made about you with or without you. Mm -hmm. So be a decision maker. Oh, I like that. Okay. So knowing everything you know now, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Diversify your revenue streams. And so get your side hustle on. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. For me, it's dream bigger. Uh, had I thought about things in a, in a bigger way um, back in my 20s, I would be even further in life yeah. today. Yeah. Dream bigger. So both of you talked a little bit about this idea of work-life balance. So Mo, what's your favorite way to get balance? Uh, I go to Vegas. Uh, Vegas is my outlet city. I've been 46 times now. It's where I go to decompress <laughs> and unwind several times a year. But that's my, it's not even about gambling. It's just about yeah. the atmosphere yeah. of being able to do anything at any hour in Las Vegas. It's yeah, 46 times and you're only like 20. Yeah, right. right, right. <laughs> 23 now. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Bo? Um, so there's two activities. One I'll talk about and one I cannot. <laughs> uh, but uh, I do like listening to music with my headphones so I can really get lost in the music. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. What did you want to be when you were a kid? Now, Mo, I know you talked about being an attorney. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to be an NBA player. I used to go around calling myself Bo the Pro. <laughs> well, right now, see, that's something I didn't know. Interesting. So how that worked out. Yeah. <laughs> how about a pet peeve, Mo? Wasting my time. I, I I can't do eight meetings about nothing. Tell me about your life stuff. I mean, then so just having my time wasted is one of those things that just really drives me nuts. Yeah. Negative people who just complain all the time and aren't looking for solutions. Ah, I cannot stand it. Yes. So both of you talked about children. Um, what's your proudest moment? Can be personal or professional. I mean, birth of my children certainly is. Um, but beyond that, I would say um, uh, building this agency has been a very proud moment. And one just singular moment that stood out is when I spoke at my mother's funeral and gave her a tribute because I was worried about how emotional I would be. And I just had one of those experiences where I felt like God just talked through me and I gave probably one of the best speeches of my life. And so people still talk about it today. Wow. Wow. Uh, proudest, you know, I have a lot. I, mean, I have three girls, all smart, all beautiful. And they just, they just, um, whenever they do stuff and I see myself in them, I just, you know, I just kind of well up because I, I can see, um, even though they're, they're girls and they, you know, like mom in a lot of ways, uh, they 
really gravitate toward me in certain things that they do. So I'm proud of that. Professionally, you know, when I really got to our, our 10 year, we're coming up on 15 years. But when I got to the 10 year anniversary, my mentality got to where I could breathe because I felt like, you know, there's so many businesses they talk about fail in so short, uh, such a short amount of time. When I got there, I felt like, oh, okay, I'm in double digits now. I can, <laughs> I can go sit at the big boys table yeah. now. I, I, I've got a little bit uh, of idea about how to run an organization. So that was, that was a proud moment for me. Okay. And how do you start the day? I need to develop a ritual, but I just clean up and roll. <laughs> that is the ritual then. <laughs> that is it. I, I try to work out. I'm really try, trying to be much more, um, I'm, I'm noticing as I get older, things don't work the way they're supposed to automatically anymore, so you've got to actually work at it. Right. So that's my Yes, age catches up with you. Yeah. Uh, so who is on the guest list for your ideal dinner party, living or deceased? Depends on how big the party, but... Um, I definitely want to have uh, Barack and Michelle there. I want to have Muhammad Ali, uh, Martin and Malcolm. I want to get their perspective. Uh, Harry Tubman, John Brown, and uh, Gabrielle Union. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. That that one threw me off at the end. For personal reasons, that's right. <laughs> The prophet Gabrielle. <laughs> oh no, that's my. That would be my lady. Yeah, I love it. I love <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so I'm gonna start with Neil Long, but then on top of that, so you know, I, I lost my mom at the age of uh, 13. So I would, I would have mom there. So much of my life she hadn't seen. I would have Adolf Hitler. Um, mm. I, I am very interested in um, the way leaders think, and mm. you know, define leadership defined in so many different ways for me. Uh, I would have Nelson Mandela uh, uh, there. I would also have Barack and Michelle. I think both of them have perspectives about how to lead in in, um, phenomenal ways. And I would have my children Mm because I think that conversation and to hear it would just be phenomenal. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I'd like to hear the discussion between Adolf and Barack. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay. Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, or Instagram? Facebook is the only one I really do anything on. Uh, but I do have accounts, but yeah. I don't really do anything with them. Okay. Uh, Preference-wise to me would probably be Instagram. I, I think, you know, learning people through the images they choose to share is just an interesting way to do it. It's not a lot of commentary. Not a lot of, it's really just you sharing photos about your life. Yeah. What brings you the greatest joy? Watching my kids achieve. Mm. Uh, that brings me greatest joy. Um, outside of that, I would say um, as an educator, when uh, students have that aha moment and that light bulb goes off and they know they can do something that they once thought they couldn't, I love that. Yeah. I, I would say, I'm mean, seeing growth, uh, both in my, my children, but then also the leaders around me, whether it's leaders we're working with or the folks who work in our organization, just seeing people grow in a genuine way is just phenomenal to me. Yeah. Okay. What about can't miss TV show? Game of Thrones. Are you a I'm Game sorry. of Thrones fan? No, okay. Big time. I can't get into Game of Thrones. <laughs> I haven't gotten that book yet. Um, House of Cards, um, my go-to will always be The West Wing. It's my favorite show. I've probably seen every episode seven times, and I will go back and watch it like it's new. And, and I imagine that's connected to those former political aspirations. Yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe. But I, just, but, but I also will say everything we have witnessed in modern-day government has happened on The West Wing. Really? Interesting. Absolutely. Interesting. Okay. So who are your heroes? Mo? Uh, my dad, in a lot of ways. Um Simple guy, not educated, not uh, college educated, um, never really business owner, but just I think navigating, um, you know, 
what most folks would call not a lot of money, poor uh, in a lot of ways, and at the same time uh, being able to raise you know five children, four boys, um, and still have clarity of thought and a good perspective is is somebody I just always hold up. <coughs> How about you, Bo? Uh, definitely Barack Obama mm-hmm. uh, and Muhammad Ali. Okay, guilty pleasure that you can share on the show. Let qualify. Soda pop to Vegas. Okay, so Vegas and yeah. soda pop. All right. Okay. The biggest compliment you've ever received. Daddy, you're my hero. Oh, <laughs> yeah. love. Yeah, Something that. similar. Yeah, yeah love that. it. Yeah. Okay. Biggest career related success. Hmm. Well, I, I would say personally, um, if I'm thinking about organizationally, it's positioning our agency. We're in a strong financial position, I think well-respected in the community. If I think about it on more of an individual level, it's seeing some of the people whose lives have been transformed, that now they are very successful Mm -hmm. um, and now come back here as bosses and Mm -hmm. hire people, um, you know, from our programs because of the support that we provide to them. So I think about Jeffrey Samage and Sandra Hogan, some success stories that we have out there. Yeah, I, I love seeing that. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I, I actually would say the same thing. I, I actually would have a former employee last night and uh, just kind of catching up and just to see leaders that we've tried to develop. And, and in some cases, me pushing them to go do other things because I recognize them with me was not where they where God was trying to take them. Mm. And so seeing them um, grow up and, and, and blossom and do phenomenal things beyond where I would ever expect them to go is, is rewarding to me. That's okay. what it's all about. All right. What would you say is the one thing that you're better at than anyone else? <laughs> anyone else? Uh, I, 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 have, I think I have a skill of seeing um, what other people don't see. Mm-hmm. So it's a clairvoyance. I think mm-hmm. about situations, systems, processes, um, and seeing how pieces can fit together. I think that's a strength of mine. Okay. A bow? Oh, so if I need clairvoyance, I'm going to Mo. Uh, I think connecting with people uh, from all walks of life, you know, very versatile. Mm -hmm. Um, Someone once asked my wife, uh, you know, give those one definition or one words to describe, you know, your husband or whatever. And initially she said she was going to say ghetto. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That some people might not know. But she came back with, she said versatile. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I would agree with that. Okay. Last one. How do you... When at work? I don't know. I lose a lot. No. <laughs> <laughs> How do I win at work? Uh, being intentional about being better than everybody else. I think that's, when you sum it up, that's what I try to instill in our team is we've got to be excellent every time, all the time. And if we can do that, we're always going to win. Excellent. Um, I think being authentic and um, courageous uh, willing to take uh, calculated risk and uh, to try and be transformative. Excellent. So thank you, gentlemen, for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Okay, everybody, that's this week's episode of the Win at Work podcast. Did you learn something new today? Do you have a question about anything that we talked about? If so, we'd love to hear from you. Send us a note at podcast at winatwork.net with CEO conversation in the subject line and tell us your story.
we just might feature you on an upcoming episode. Or you can always leave us a comment on Facebook. If you love the episode, please share the link with a friend or colleague, leave us a rating, and write a review. It's very much appreciated. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.